Welcome everyone to a new episode of Talking About Books for Kids. I know it's been a minute since I've recorded an episode or shared an episode, but thank you so much for your patience. But I'm excited for this particular episode um, because one, I get back get back to talking about what I love, what one of the things I love the most, reading books and talking about books um, for for children. And this particular episode, we have our special as our special guest, Dr. Ebony Elizabeth Thomas who is the author of the newly re- released book, The Dark Fantastic, Race in the Imagination from Harry Potter to the Hunger Games. So this is also a special episode for me as well, because it'll be featured as well on my other podcast, which is sort of take, which has taken, taken up some of my time and why I haven't been putting out as many episodes of talking about books for kids. So, and that, uh, that podcast is What is Black? So I'll put a little commercial um, for that podcast where I talk about parenting um, black children and helping parents, you know, as we talk about issues of race, identity, culture, and, you know, kind of questioning and challenging um, generalizations and stereotypes of what, what it means to be black in America. And I think this is a, this is a great book. I think books do a wonderful job of helping, helping us as parents to teach our kids and to, to learn about, to learn about ourselves and reflect on um, our culture and, and who we are. And I think, um, Dr. Our conver- I think you'll really enjoy this conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Thomas. So I'll stop talking and we'll get started with the episode. So thank you for joining us today, um, um, Dr. Thomas. So I have a special guest today with me, Dr. Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, and she is the author of the forthcoming book, um, The Dark Fantastic, Race and the Imagination from Harry Potter to the Hunger Games. So thank you for joining us today, um, Dr. Thomas. Thanks for having me. So I will I will call you Ebony, but I definitely wanted to make sure that um, we have your 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 title just to reflect all the education and knowledge that you'll bring to today's um, conversation. <laughs> so as I you know as mentioned earlier, I was definitely fascinated fascinated by um, the the title of your upcoming book, The Dark Fantastic. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit um, with us how you came up with the title and sort of the inspiration for for this work. Certainly. I came up with the title many, many years ago when I first read Todorov's The Fantastic, which is a classic in the study of science fiction, fantasy, and other speculative fiction types. So he took a structuralist approach, which means that he looked at the structure of um, speculative fiction as a literary genre. And I I thought that, well, you know, I'm not really sure that he's taken into account the experiences of women, people of color, et cetera. And, of course, I'm not knocking him necessarily for that because of the age in which he lived. But I thought, well, if I write something about it, it's going to be the black fantastic or the dark fantastic. Um, It's also a play off a Terry Pratchett title that's pretty famous um, about the light fantastic. And so I thought about, um, I remember reading that many, many years ago and thinking, again, hmm, if I write a book about this, it'll be called The Dark Fantastic because I'm a black woman. So, yeah, okay. so that's where the title came from. I have had the title many, many years. 
Very cool. So in, in doing some research about, about your um, educational background as well as your um, professional background, I know that you have a, have a strong interest in writing about fantasy. And where, where did that come from? And, and does, this, does this book allow you to be able to, it, it seems like it does allow you to combine your interests um, with, your, with your research. Yes, it absolutely did. It was a nice convergence. So um, initially, when I first went to graduate school, I thought that I would be able to um, write a dissertation on um, fantasy in the classroom. So I was intrigued by a few things that were converging throughout my 20s. The first was that I was an avid fan of Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and other high fantasy um, or school fantasy novels, and a lot of my black students in Detroit really weren't. And so I didn't think, um, I you know, I didn't think that they were wrong for not wanting to read. Um, the same kinds of books that their teacher did, but um, and it was certainly not all students. However, there seemed to be something about reading and reader identity there that I couldn't quite put my finger on. So, you know, you had a few of the kids, nerd kids, who would openly identify with fantasy, anime, science fiction, etc. But there was also this spoken um, sometimes, but often unspoken implication that um, fantasy and other kinds of speculative genres really weren't for black people. And um, while some of that may have been because there are a few black characters in some of the mainstream fantasy novels that have been popularized over the past half century and more, I knew something deeper was going on, so I really wanted to study that. Unfortunately, when I was in graduate school 10 to 15 years ago, uh, well, almost that, I've been out nine years, that um, studying fantasy in the classroom wasn't seen as a project that would be viable enough for dissertation. There wasn't much published back then that I could have drawn upon for my literature reviews. And so I had to shelve this project until I became a professor in my own right and could set my research agenda. So that's how <laughs> it originated. Oh, and then there was the other thing. Um, I tried but failed to publish my own fantasy novel. So I was a popular fan fiction author in early Harry Potter fandom, and I thought, well, I'll write my own fantasy, but I'll have black characters in it instead. So I'll write something where my students can see themselves represented. And so I came up with this story of a teenage um, black boy who's a shapeshifter, and I would read parts of it in class, and I had, you know, um, copies of chapters for students to read, um, and I was successful getting an agent, but there was no market for that sort of thing back then. Granted, I didn't have an MFA. I wasn't wonderfully adept at craft at that time. But, um, you know, there are plenty of mediocre fantasies being published, but not necessarily by authors of color um, back then. And, of course, it was in the middle of the 2000s, so this would have been 2003, 2004, and I think I stopped trying to publish that manuscript in 2007. So, you know, my students 
lack of interest, along with my um, inability to publish a fantasy novel, um, you know, many years ago, led to me asking some questions about fantasy and the whole of speculative fiction itself. I wanted to know how it dealt with race, and that's what led to the Dark Fantastic. Over the over the last year, there have been um, really really popular fantasies. So the one that I can one that I can think of is of Blood and Bones. So I'm wondering, do you think this is a moment, or do you moment in time for increased inclusion, or do you think there's momentum to continue to have more um, more books that have main characters um, of color and fantasy? I just wanted to get your your thoughts. Sure. Well, I am so thrilled by the Year of the Black Girl YA Young Adult Fantasy, which was 2018. So in the same year that we got Black Panther breaking all kinds of Hollywood box office records on the big screen, we received four young adult novels with black girl protagonists from the big six children's publishers. So there was, along with Children of Blood and Bone by Tommy Adeyemi, there was Dread Nation by Justina Ireland, A Blade So Black by L.L. McKinney, and Daniel Clayton's The Bells. Um, so this was unprecedented. Um, I think the last year that we received more than one uh, speculative book in that category was 2013 with Alea Dawn Johnson's The Summer Prince and Sherry L. Smith's Orleans. So, you know, at that point, we were hoping to get a few more um, young adult fantasy novels from major publishers. So there are a few things to be said about that. The first is that um, one of the arguments that I've made that's not popular is that what happens in mainstream fantasy matters as well. So looking at the ways in which characters of color are treated in um, narratives where um, the world itself, the fantasy world itself isn't black matters because those kinds of fantasies reach more people, um, at least for now. Of course, we have a Black Panther, which, but is that really enough to negate decades or even centuries of fantasy being pretty whitewashed? I wonder. So that's number one. Um, the second is audience reception. Audiences loved Black Panther and um, Children of Blood and Bones. So these are, you know, amazing, um, incredible uh, narratives that I love and fangirl myself. However, if you look at online message boards, you look at social media and other forms of digital audience response, you often see the same old racism cropping up all over the place. And so I think, yes, we have begun some momentum. However, in the United States, as with any area where race is a factor, um, sometimes we'll see a glimmer of hope or progress and we'll declare the victory as won. And I think that that is just, we can't do that. When over 3,000 uh, young adult novels are published every year, I think that four, instead of just having two or zero, is a step in the right direction. But I think I'll begin to relax a little bit more when we get a couple of dozen per year. The market can handle that. The market needs that, and so do our kids and teens. So 
I think maybe do you think that some of that is because not just not just the fantasy genre, but I think across genres, right? There's not a there's not enough of protagonists written by from the point of view of a person of color that matches the protagonist. So do you think there in your in your research and hopefully um, any upcoming I'm hoping that you have an opportunity to to also add your your work as well to the <laughs> fantasy and speculative fiction genre. I want to put that out there into the world for you. Um, Thank you. Do you think? <laughs> Do you think there there opportunity? Hopefully, the fact that these are successful, that that will help spur more, but or also to maybe the process of books. Because I'm gonna take so long for books to be published and put out there on the market. Yes, absolutely. Um, one example of that is one of my most anticipated fantasies coming up is actually a black boy fantasy novel written by Kwame Mbalia. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Um, it's called Tristan Strong Punches a Hole in the Sky, and it's a middle-grade fantasy novel featuring a black boy, um, and the world building is based on both black American folklore and African, uh, West African myth and religion. So, and there's a prominent uh, picture of um, John Henry. The cover for this is it, it, incredible. But, you know, the lead time for most of the books, it was announced, I want to say early last year, and the book won't be out until next year. So generally you have two or three years, even more lead time for many novels. But if we had a couple dozen authors in the mainstream pipeline for science fiction and fantasy, so black authors, um, as well as many more authors of color and other kinds of authors from other marginalized groups, we wouldn't have to wait, you know, so long yeah. between books. We would have a steady stream of books and content. I'm also looking um, at original fantasy um, and science fiction world building versus worlds that are already attached to an existing property. So I love Black Panther. I keep, I'm going to keep saying that. But one of the limitations of it is that it has to operate within the larger Marvel universe because uh, mm -hmm. Black Panther is a superhero that comes out of Marvel. Children of Blood and Bone, for instance, um, is not. That is her independent world building, and I'm so heartened by that. Um, we also have an adult say, epic fantasy coming out this year. It's just been released this month by um, award-winning um, author Marlon James. I believe the title is Black Leopard, Red Wolf, and it's supposed to be an African Game of Thrones. So that's, you know, mm -hmm. you know if you listen to how I'm um, describing these titles, Usually, it, you know, we have to connect ourselves to an extant white fantasy or science fiction franchise. And I, I get it. I get why that is. I'm not saying that, well, we can't describe it as an African Game of Thrones. But, you know, God bless us when we get to the time when we can just describe the story as a thing that is exciting on its own. So just describing it as, wow, this is a high fantasy novel or series or film that's based on African folklore um, or specific African folklore, like Children of Blood and Bone, is based on Nigerian um, religion and mythology specifically. Um, 
so I think, you know, we're still sort of tethered to the Western fantastic, for better or for worse. And that's what my book actually looks at, race and mainstream fantasy, not analyzing what authors of color are doing, sort of um, a, a manifesto against some of the racism that continues to be embedded in uh, mainstream um, fantasy and science fiction. So I definitely, I definitely want to get to get to that perspective that you took for the book. But I, I did have one one quick question. I just want to get back to when you when you were in graduate school, as well as a professor, sort of the quote unquote the nerd, the nerd that, or the person who identified as a nerd that might be have had an affinity for um, fantasy books. Do you think that is also an issue as well? Like how we how we subtype people, like there's this certain type of person that reads this certain type of novel. Oh, sure, absolutely. Um, I think less so, and I think that's because in the millennial generation um, and Generation Z after them, the digital age has brought um, with it sort of this sense of geek chic. So you can, it's cool to be a nerd because, you know, um, you not only have social cachet associated with it, but economic success. So, um, you know, 25, 30 years ago, um, when I was a child, being a nerd was Revenge of the Nerds and Steve Urkel from Family Matters. But now when, you know, most of your billionaires are tech moguls, then, of course, it's cooler to be a nerd. Also, the millennial generation itself rewarded and consumed um, speculative fiction um, and, um, you know, created these fandoms around it. So, I mean, fandoms, nothing new, but exploded with the Internet. Um, and so millennials had these three big franchises that they loved. So Harry Potter, The Hunger Games, and Twilight, just to name the, the largest three that were enormously popular book series that spun off films and that are still quite profitable for both publishers and Hollywood today. Um, that's very different than my own generation. I'm at the tail end of Generation X. Some people call our in-between generation the x millennials, And we rewarded realism in everything from our music, which was hip-hop and grunge, to the stories we wanted to see. I mean, of course, we had satire like Clueless, but we certainly, after childhood, did not consume fantasy in the way that millennials had. So, you know, that the rise of that generation, which is bigger than ours, you know, they never left fantasy. So they went from, you know, Harry Potter and the Hunger Games all the way to Marvel, DC, and famously Game of Thrones. And, um, you know, a lot of us were consuming, you know, all of that content with them. But many people who are 40 and over, we would have never thought we'd see, um, you know, everyone becoming a nerd or Comic-Con becoming such a huge thing and not something you kind of did quietly or being able to announce that you're a Trekkie. You know, that was grounds for getting beat up or at least socially ostracized before the early 90s. So I do think that um, the changes in popular culture have made the stakes of this higher than ever. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that this, this next generation, hopefully as they become people in, in power, right, in terms of like heading up some of these publishing companies and um, yeah. become agents, right, they'll be, they'll be the 
quote unquote the agents of change. I'm hoping, um, but I definitely want to get back to the the perspective of the book that you that you've taken. Um, I in reading the title of the book and reading some background information about the book, you focus on four black girl protagonists from books and TV shows. And yeah. I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about, again, why why you chose to do that, to incorporate into the book, The Dark Fantastic. So what I wanted to do was to look at how black girls and women were being treated in very popular financially lucrative speculative fiction. Um, I wanted to look at specifically transmedia narratives, which are um, stories that are translated from books to screen. So we, the term or the phrase that we use in this kind of study is from page to the screen. So these were first, in most cases, very popular books um, that were consumed by youth and young adults and then they were picked up for um, deals. So um, among the four protagonists, Harry Potter's Hermione, and of course I raced Hermione just to make a point about Black Hermione, which we can get back to later. Um, that was a film franchise. So was The Hunger Games, and I focus on Rue there. And then um, among television shows, which I think um, really have been understudied, when you think about teens and diversity, what happens on the CW, um, ABC Family, which is now Freeform, and other um, television channels that are targeting um, not just teens, but also um, the young adult market, the 18 to 34 market. What happens to black characters and other characters of color on those kinds of shows is worth um, Note, and it's certainly something that um, black audiences for these shows, black millennial audiences, notice and note. So, for um, I looked at just two shows. Um, I looked at um, the Vampire Diaries, which I watched. Um, you know, it's eight seasons long, from 2009 to 2017. So I looked at Teen Witch, um, Bonnie Bennett on that show, and then I looked at a race-bent Guinevere Pendragon from the BBC's Merlin. So, well, you can't focus on, I mean, I could have chosen some other um, protagonists, or not even protagonists, but black characters, other shows, other books. I just felt as if these four cases were illustrative and descriptive enough that I could build the theory um, describing those four. Because after a while, it gets repetitive because I kept seeing the same cycle over and over in story after story. Um, so it, it's really interesting. Also, one of the things I noticed is that some of the racist violence and erasure got amplified once the narrative became visual in some cases. So, um, yeah. Those are some of the things I noticed. And so, I mean, I think, and and that's fascinating. I'm looking forward to to reading the book once it once it comes out. But I, but like sure. you mentioned, um, the focus on Black Hermione, or the character mm -hmm. Black the I shouldn't say yes. it, right. So, um, making Hermione um, Af black. black as opposed to to white. And I was wondering, 
I think, and in, in, you can correct me if I'm wrong, in doing some of my reading, that even in your fan fiction, you sort of envisioned her, or you had, or other people who wrote fan fiction even envisioned her as African American, even before, or black. Cause maybe I shouldn't say African American because it's, okay, she's she's English, right? So yeah, you being see, black, yeah, black, she would be black British, right, or mixed race British, yeah. Um, so how I, how you yes. Well, um, first of all, one of the points I make in the book, and we'll have to get you in a, co- a copy. Maybe we can see if we can scare us in advance, read our copy, if we can read it um, in advance since we're on this wonderful podcast. Um, I, um, I actually didn't see Hermione as black. Um, and the argument that I make in the conclusion of the book is that black millennial girls actually read her as black. Most people my age didn't read her as black because we had been socialized as we learned to read that we were never the protagonist in a story like that if she were black. So I wrote <laughs> over a million words of fan fiction about Hermione, but um, I think I explained away her frizzy hair with her having a, um, a Jewish grandmother because I had a lot of Jewish friends and, you know, we all we commiserated about hair. And so that was the, the most... I could, you know, do in my imagination. So when I saw about 10 years ago, a little less than 10 years ago, that millennial um, young women were on Tumblr and on other social media sites insisting that Hermione was black and drawing her as black, I was intrigued. I had no idea that my imagination had been so colonized and whitewashed through all the reading I had done ever since I was a little girl. So and um, so, what I, I I call that is an emancipatory reading. So these girls were so looking for mirrors of the self in the book that they read themselves into Hermione. They did not accept that textual erasure of the black girl. They actually read the self into Hermione. They read it. You know, one thing that broke my heart was that Tommy um, said in an interview that she wrote Children of Blood and Bone because being a Harry Potter fan growing up, she really didn't see herself represented. And I thought about my struggle and the struggle of other authors of color, particularly black women that I'm good friends with, to try to publish even mediocre or terrible genre fiction. You know, genre fiction back then had reputation anyway. And I just, my heart just breaks because I wrote my original story, you know, manuscript for her generation. Like, um, I am probably twice as old as she is. And because of that barrier in publishing, well, they had to read themselves into Hermione and into other fantasy protagonists who um, the author may not have imagined as black, but, you know, we, we're, we're all the protagonists of our own stories. We're all the main characters of our own life stories. And so these girls did something incredible. You know, they, were, they, they refused to accept their own erasure and marginalization in their minds. So I'm, I'm glad that you were able to kind of sort of break that down um, for readers and the research that you're doing. Do you... Do you see, you know, your, your, your career, or part of your research is on diversity in children and young adult literature. How, what, what are you seeing is on the horizon for um, 
for just for books in general for kids of color and writers of color? Well, I think that we're going to see more books um, that are either movie or um, television show tie-ins. Um, we are in the golden age of television, and Marvel movies have completely dominated Hollywood. So there's never been a good time to be – I mean, there's never been a better time to be a geek than now. Um, I do hope for two things. I hope that um, current trends continue and that publishers and filmmakers or Hollywood executives are not flighty. So no, not every um, black fantasy movie is going to do the numbers of Black Panther. So I remember there was a lot of comparing going on when A Wrinkle of Time came out the very next month, did do Black Panther numbers, and there were so many different reasons for that. But no, not everything is going to be a Black Panther, just like not every non-black <laughs> fantasy does Black Panther numbers. And similarly with books, you know, Children of Blood and Bone did very well, and I believe there's going to be a movie or a film made. But I still would like to see publishers in Hollywood commit to books that are not going to be number two or number one on the New York uh, Times bestseller list. Many um, fantasy and science fiction authors, particularly over on the adult side of things, they're able to build their career over years and decades. So George R. R. Martin, who is at the top of the world for Game of Thrones these days, he is a textbook example. A Song of Ice and Fire was not his first fantasy series. So that was not his first time being published, it actually happened, that huge blockbuster stratospheric success happened when he was quite middle-aged. So one of the things that um, many of us talk about and want to work on is A, breaking more authors of color, especially black authors in my case, since that's what I focus on, into print but also sustaining their careers. So, you know, perhaps if the first couple of books do okay, but they're not doing New York Times number one bestseller numbers, let's commit to the career over time so that, hey, maybe it'll happen with their fifth or sixth novel. So I think we need to reward people who are in that game for a long time, slow and steady wins the race, as well as the next big thing and the young ingenue. So that's what I would like to see happen in children's and young adult literature. I'd also finally like to see more editors and agents who understand fantasy and science fiction and diversity and are part of some of those conversations. Um, recently we had a controversy, which I won't get into, but it was over um, a novel written by a Chinese-American um, woman that was a Russian fantasy, but that some early readers felt incorporated very racist tropes. And every time one of these controversies breaks and the author's pilloried and then people are saying, oh, you're being mean to the author, I always wonder why the people behind the scenes get off the hook. So with editing um, and, you know, gatekeeping, you know, the function shouldn't be to keep so many people who are not like you out. It should be to make sure that you write a book that reflects the demographics of the kids we have today 
and that, you know, let's move around instead of reincorporating so many of the bad things from the past. Oh, man, I could, I could talk to you um, for a longer period of time. I mean, I could, yeah, I think, because I think these are important, um, important areas to address in our society, and unfortunately our society sort of, you know, is the is the fertile ground for how our how our children how and how our and we form as adults. So I think we do have to change the soil, right? I think, and yeah. so my other my other hat is as a public health and pediatrician. And there's this one doc. Her name is Dr. Kamara Jones, and she talks she does an analogy the garden the gardener's mm-hmm. tale, and it's basically how you cultivate, right? How do you how do you nourish? Um, the souls of those plants, so that yes. you don't grow, you don't grow up. You know this this separate idea, but one that that is inclusive. And again, I'll I'll put a I'll put a link to the Gardener's Tale. Dr. Kamora Jones does a better better job of it. But I but I feel like there's always these intersections, right? The literature yes. informs our culture. Our culture informs our literature, um, and how we how we how we propagate myths, how we, how we propagate and affirm people, and how we share, like you share our stories, um, and the diversity of stories is, is so important and integral to, um, to how we are as a society and how we'll be better as a society. So I, I think you're doing wonderful work, and I, and I always am amazed at how important literature is as a parent, as a pediatrician, even public health, to help um, help help further conversations or even spark conversations and thinking and how we can progress. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I um, yeah, I I would totally agree. Um, I do think that it's important for us to think about you know anti-racism as well as decolonial narratives for children, teen, and young adults. So, um, you know, um, I haven't figured it all out. One person I learn from all the time um, among many is um, Dr. Debbie Reese of American Indians and Children's Literature. So while I do a lot around race and gender and science fiction and fantasy in particular and children's and young adult literature in general, often I don't think about, you know, sort of anti-Native um, tropes in children's literature. And often we find that um, anti-black racism and anti-indigeneity or anti-native, you know, sort of settler colonialism go hand in hand. So I've written with her before, and I really, she's one of my um, close colleagues. So she's just one person. Um, Another thing I don't often think or talk enough about is thinking about sexuality and gender creativity and nonconformity. And so I just really think that although intersectionality has been co-opted and got, uh, you know, by people who do not mean the rest of us very well, I really love what Professor Kimberly Crenshaw um, has had to say about it. We really do need to reconsider all of these, um, you know, um, narrative positions and through the lenses that all of us have and carry with us in order to build a new and just world. And, of course, as you say, stories are a huge part of that. Thank you so much, Ebony, for joining us today. You're very welcome. Take care. I love speaking with 
Dr. Ebony Elizabeth Thomas about her new book, The Dark Fantastic. The interview was done before the book came out. But now that the book is out, I have my copy. I'm looking forward to reading it. And I hope you pick up a copy as well. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking About Books for Kids and supporting us. If you love this podcast, you're going to love my other podcast, What is Black? Please check that out. We're also on Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review and listen to other great interviews and episodes with authors, um, pediatricians, and other um, great guests. Talk to you soon.